0: We are in James chapter 1 this morning, James 1 verse 27, and I want to start with something that will wake you up and get you involved in the message, so I'm going to start by talking about politics, okay? All right, so used to be, yeah, politics has always been contentious, it's always a way to start a fight, but uh, used to be, at least no matter how you voted, we all had a, a consensus as a people, What? a good person looks like, what a good person is, what it means to live a life that is good and blesses others. We could all sort of agree on that. Not anymore. We've gotten to a point in our life, in our, in our national culture, where everything comes down to politics. People are, are twisting themselves into knots to try to figure out, okay, is it okay for me to like this kind of music? I mean, do my people in my tribe like that kind of music or no? Do they like this athlete? Do they like this actor? Do they like this movie? Is it okay to eat at this restaurant? I'm not making this up. There is a study, and it's a couple of years old, that says you can tell if you're you're in a conservative community because they have a Cracker Barrel. (laughs) On the other hand, if you drive up and you see a Whole Foods market, well, that's a a community that votes more progressive. And so, uh, you know, it even comes down to that kind of thing. And let me just say, in case anybody's anxious about this, I've eaten food from both. I like both places. It didn't do a thing to my politics. Don't worry Okay, you go into one of these places, you're not going to walk out a Marxist, I promise you, unless you went in a Marxist and that's your business. But we're so divided, we can't even agree on what a good person is anymore. So for instance, if you ask people from the political left, what is a good person? They're going to evaluate a person's character on the basis of justice issues. Things like, uh, do you fight against discrimination and income inequality? Do you try to help lift up those who are on the bottom? Do you speak out against hateful words and hateful views? Do you take care of the planet? Now, whereas who you sleep with, how you feel about this country, what God you believe in, if any, that's nobody's business but your own. It's certainly not the government's business to get involved in that. Um, Now, this is not to say that people on the left can't be people of high moral character. It can't be people who, who uh, who go to church and love the lord and 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 love this country because I know plenty of people on that side of the political aisle who do it 's just the social pressure is all from the perspective of justice whereas on the right the social pressure is all on the Uh, in the area of uh, what I would call traditional moral standards. So a good person in the eyes of the political right is someone who is sexually faithful, loves their family, is patriotic, believes in God, whereas how you spend your hard-earned money, what you believe about issues of race and sexuality, whether you want to drive a monster truck or recycle your garbage or shoot quail out of the air with an AK-47, that's your business, It's not the government's business to get involved. I know, nobody shoots quail with an assault rifle. I'm just being funny, okay? (laughs) And it's not to say that conservative people can't be compassionate, can't have concerns about race and equality because I knew plenty of people on that side of the aisle who fit that description. It's just, you don't get any social pressure from that tribe in those areas. But guess what? Someday, every one of us, no matter how you vote, no matter what color you are, no matter how much money you make, every one of us is going to stand judgment someday. Someday we'll have to give an accounting for our lives before the king of the universe. He'll be sitting on a high lofty throne. And I guarantee you on that moment, your knees will go weak. You will feel the sense of awe like nothing you've ever experienced because sitting on that throne will not be Joe Biden and it won't be Donald Trump. It won't be Nancy Pelosi and it won't be Ted Cruz. It won't be Rachel Maddow. It won't be Tucker Carlson. It'll be Jesus Christ and him alone. And it won't matter one bit what your political tribe thinks of you at that moment. All that will matter is what he thinks of you. So what does he think is a good life? What does he think is a good person? What does he think is a life well lived? What does he think is a life that he is willing to say at the end of it, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into the blessings of my father's kingdom. That's what we want to talk about today. I, I, don't, I can't think of a more important question. Now, a pretty good answer is found in the verse we're gonna start with today. We're gonna be in a lot of scripture, so I hope you'll pay attention and keep up. It's gonna be on the screen, that'll help you, but keep up. So James 1.27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So when he says religion that is pure and undefiled, he's using Old Testament lingo. So you know this if you've read the Old Testament. Most of you have. God, at the, at the beginning of the nation of Israel, he he, he started this. He, he created this intricate system of sacrifices. So in, in, in ancient Israel, you didn't worship by showing up to church and singing songs and, and praying prayers and listening to a sermon. You worship by bringing a bull or a goat or some of your crop. And so there was a specific way you could offer your offering that would please the Lord. Remember, One of the first stories in the Bible is Cain and Abel. Both of them bring sacrifices to God. God likes Abel's sacrifice. He accepts it. He doesn't like Cain's. Why? Well, it's not just the quality of the sacrifice. It's also the heart with which you give the sacrifice. Let me show you what I mean. So it's not just whether it's a good sacrifice. It's not just whether you were ritually clean. It's how do you live between Sabbath days, or between times you go to the temple. Psalm 24 verses three through four says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He's talking about the temple. Who can stand in God's presence and give a sacrifice that God will accept? The answer is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So God sees the way you've been living. God knows what your life consists of. And if you're not living a good life, he doesn't want your worship. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, if you want to join the choir, you need to be able to sing. You know, Robert's a really nice guy, but he's, he's not just going to take anybody. You got to be actually be able to sing. The good news for people like me is God doesn't care how my voice sounds. I don't, it, God does not receive my, my songs of praise based on the quality of my voice. God's not out there like, okay, you're a little pitchy dog. That's not God. God is only concerned with the heart with which I sing, the heart with which I give, the heart with which I listen, the heart with which I pray. So what is a good heart? What is a good life? When, Paul, when, when James says religion that is pure and undefiled, he's talking about a good life. And what does that consist of? The rest of the verse tells us two things. Number one, it's taking care of widows and orphans. But why them? If you've been with us in this series, you know this by now, all throughout the scriptures, there are three groups that get mentioned all the time. There's widows, orphans, and immigrants. This time he just mentions the widows and orphans. The point is the same. Widows and orphans and immigrants in the ancient world were on the bottom of the societal rung, the societal ladder. No one took up their cause, so God said, I will take up their cause put it another way, if you lived back then, you had no incentive to help or to do a favor for a widow, an orphan, or an immigrant because they didn't have any money, so they couldn't pay you back. They didn't have any societal clout, so you couldn't advance yourself in any way. If you were nice to them, it was only because you love God and you knew God loved them. So this is not God saying, earn your salvation by being kind to the widow and the orphan. It's his way of saying, whoever you see who's struggling, if you help them, that's what it means to be a good person. If you get ingenious with whatever opportunities, whatever resources, whatever whatever gifts you have to help them, to bless them, to invest in them, that's being a good person. Now on Wednesday nights, I teach a Bible study. Right now we're in Galatians, but in two weeks, we're going to start right here in the book of James. So, I'm kind of giving you a preview. But the second chapter, chapter of James is all about this idea of helping those who are hurting. Let me show you. James 2 8 through 9 says, If you really fulfill the royal law, why does he call it the royal law? Because Jesus gave it to us. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are commit, convicted by the law as transgressors. As Jesus said, If you love your neighbor, you're fulfilling the whole law. You're more righteous than the person who has all 613 commands in the Old Testament memorized because you're actually doing what God wants you to do in loving somebody else. He goes on in James 2, 14 through 16 and says, what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now we all know this. The dumbest person in this room, don't look at your neighbor, the dumbest person in this room knows that if you see somebody who doesn't have good clothes, you see somebody who doesn't have enough to eat, and you just walk up to them and say, God bless you, brother, then you might as well spit in their face. No, you you need to do what you can to help that person. What James is saying, the innovation James is making is, he's saying, if you're not willing to do that, if there's not at least an urge within you that says, I need to help that person, then you need to question whether or not you're saved because faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean you earn salvation by helping others. It does mean if you don't have a drive to help others that is, that is exhibited in, in intercessory prayer for others that, that leads to action, then you need to go back to God and say, Lord, what's wrong with me that I'm so self-centered? But there's another part to being a good person. It's helping others, but number two, it's keeping unstained from the world. Now that term, the world comes up a lot in scripture and it's very interesting because it, it, it means two different things depending on the context. Let me show you what I mean. Most famous verse in the Bible, I bet nine out of 10 of you can quote it by memory. We're gonna put it on the screen anyway. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. Doesn't mean he loves planet earth. It means he loves the people who live here. God loves the people who live on this planet enough. He's willing to die to save us. That's how much he loves us. But then the same guy who wrote those words of Jesus down, John the Apostle, wrote 1 John. And in 1 John 2.15, he writes, he writes, uh, where am I? Okay, there I am. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, what just happened? I mean, earlier John wrote that God loved the world so much he's willing to die for it. Now you're telling me that if I love the world, the love of God is not in me. Well, which is it? Well, we know that God didn't change his mind. John didn't just suddenly become a different person. So obviously he's using the term in two different ways. He's using it to mean two different things. Obviously the first one means the people who live here. Well, what does the second one mean? I'll give you another verse. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, not the best way to address folks, by the way, if if you want to make friends. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So here's what it comes down to. Whenever you see the word world in the Bible and it's used negatively instead of neutrally or in a good sense, whenever you see it used negatively, it doesn't mean the people who live here. It means a manner of thinking, a way of thinking. John explains it this way in John 1 John 2.16, the very next verse. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there's your definition. The negative Term the world means the way this world thinks, the way, the the culture in which we live. And and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because just like a fish doesn't know he's swimming in water because it's just his reality, we don't know we're marinating in the values of this world, but we are. Every day, everywhere we go, even around Christian people often, we're hearing, we're imbibing, we're, we're, just absorbing by osmosis the values of this world. It's what our advertisers tell us, advertisers tell us we need. It's, it's what our entertainment tells us we deserve. It's what our politicians promise to give us if we'll vote for them. It's what our friends are chasing after. It's, it's what our systems in, incentivize. It's, put it this way, it's an eight-year-old girl comes home from elementary school and says to her mom, mom, I need to lose weight. Now, maybe somewhere on earth, there's an eight-year-old girl whose doctor says she's getting too big. And we, yeah, but, but most of the time, I'm, I'm pretty sure eight-year-old girls do not need to lose weight for their health. She feels that way because the world is telling her how you look is what's most important about, about you. Not who God is making you into, but how you look and whether you'll be attractive to some boy someday, which is a lie, but that's what the world does. You go home at night and you're sitting there looking around and saying, how can I possibly be happy in this house when 99% of the people on earth would gladly trade their home for yours? That's the world talking to you. That's the world saying, you deserve more than this, right? That's what the world does. The world tells us lies, promises things it cannot deliver. And I say to teenagers all the time, if you want to follow Jesus, that's the right decision. Just understand, you're never going to be one of the cool kids. You can live a life that others respect. You can live a life that others love, that, that they aspire to, but you will never be on the top of the social ladder because in order to get to the top of the social ladder, you have to chase after the things of this world because that's what the world is values. That's what the world rewards and it doesn't change when you grow up. So right now when you're a kid, just start now saying, okay, it's all right. I don't have to be the big man on campus. I don't have to be the most popular girl around. I'm just going to follow Jesus and and, and see what happens because his way is better than the world's way. So let me just pause because right now I want you all to take a breath, wake up your neighbor, all right? because I don't want you to walk away from here saying, okay, I got it. All we have to do is try real hard to be kind to others and, and avoid sin. If, if, I'm just, if I just help people I see who are hurting and I, I stay on the moral path, then I'm gonna live a good life. No, it doesn't work. You know why? Number one, because we can't do it. Just try. Try it for a week. You'll, you'll fail. We're, we're too selfish We're too weak-willed, but secondly, and more importantly, what little progress we make in that direction produces so much self-righteousness in us, so much pride in us, that we become worse people than before we started trying. You know I'm right, because you all know very, very religious, very, very moral people who you admire, but you can't stand them. Unfortunately, that's the way our hearts are. I remember years ago, I, I took Carrie to a pastor's conference. Now, this is a little behind the scenes in the pastor's family information, but I, I love going to pastor's conferences and getting, getting fed and, and encouraged and meeting new people. And so in my younger years, I always wanted Carrie to go with me because I thought, man, she needs that kind of encouragement. And plus, I just like having her with me. And, and so I would tell her every year, hey, go to this conference with me. And she would always say, no, the kids are little. I can't, can't leave them for three or four days. And, uh, and I, finally. I convinced her one year. I was like, okay, my mom and dad will come and stay with them. They'll have fun. Uh, Just come with me. And so she did. And it was a huge mistake because I chose the wrong pastor's conference. And I I, I would tell you the name of the church and the pastor, but I don't wanna you know, bag on somebody. God's their judge, not me, but dadgummit, I am judging them because of this conference. Now, uh, it was a series of guys getting up, big church pastors getting up, and just increasingly trying to up the ante on look how awesome I am. I got to my church and it was worthless and now it's huge and it's winning souls and it's changing the world and man, God is so lucky to have me. I don't know what the Lord would do if I wasn't on his team. It was that over and over and over again and here's something you need to know about about Carrie Berger. So the kindest, gentlest person you'll ever meet, there is zero meanness or cruelty in her but that doesn't mean she's naive. She has a very, very sensitive baloney detector. Now, the world uses another term for that. I think we all know it because we live in the world. Uh, so she's very sensitive to, to people who, who get up and talk about themselves in a way that's disingenuous, who make promises they can't keep, who are, who are basically uh, spreading lies. She, she does not take kindly to that. She cannot listen to it. And so throughout this conference, I could just feel the righteous indignation just kind of coming off in waves from my wife. And I'm just praying, Lord, please, please put somebody in front of us that's going to be at least some good, uh, you know, just for her sake, if not mine. And so these are mostly younger guys, 30s, early 40s. And so finally a guy gets up who's in his mid-60s and I'm like, oh, good. Finally, somebody who's got some life experience and and some wisdom, this guy's the worst one of all. And he talks about how huge his church is now. Of course, it wasn't when he got there. And he talks about all the good things they're doing. And then here's the kicker. He says... You know, on Sunday mornings, I send out my staff and our volunteers and they go throughout the streets and they collect all the, all the homeless people and they bring them in. They bring them into our church. And then if somebody who's in a wheelchair shows up, our ushers are instructed to take that person and, and bring them up to the very front of the church, to the seat of honor. And Kerry and leans over and says, what if they don't want to sit in the front? I'm like, Shh, just wait, just wait. It, it could get better. And he talks about all their, all their ministries to those who are poor and down and out. And, and then he shifts gears and he talks about this famous athlete that goes to his church and this well-known politician and this CEO and this actor and this singer. And, and then he says, he says, and I, I promise you, I am not exaggerating. This is an exact quote. He says, so you see, we take the ones that nobody wants, so God gives us the ones everybody wants. And I knew, I didn't even have to look over beside me. I knew that, that her hands were getting ready to just forcibly snatch the keys out of my pocket and drive home with or without me. Uh, and, and because that's not Jesus. A mindset that says, look how good I am. A mindset that says, I help others so I can lord it over everybody else who doesn't. I, I avoid sin and I walk in righteousness so I can prove that I'm better than you. That's not Jesus. And I've got bad news for you. You're like that too. You're not a mega church pastor. Most of you aren't loud and, and braggy like that. But even the quietest, most unostentatious person in this room has that in their heart. And that means every time you make progress morally, every time you make progress socially, every time you do a good deed, the danger is you're gonna become a self-centered, proud person who's just like those who hated Jesus. So what do we do? What hope is there for us? So you go back to the verse we started with and you go a couple more verses ahead. James 2, one, and we get the answer. James writes, my brother's, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, you know this, you've, you've been in church before. If you and I would ever stop and just look at the titles that God has given, that Jesus is given in scripture and study what those really mean, it would, it would change our lives. This, as far as I know, is the only time in the Bible Jesus is called the Lord of glory. And the fact that he's called that and Who calls him that is significant. Let me show you what I mean. We hear the word glory and and we have all different kinds of associations with that name, but to a Jew like James, glory, that word meant something very specific and very important. God's glory was his visible self. When God let you see some part of his glory, that was a life-changing experience. In the desert during Exodus, we studied Exodus last fall, so some of you remember this. They saw the Shekinah glory of God in the form of this brilliant glowing cloud by day and this incredible flame of fire, this pillar of fire by night. And Moses in Exodus 34 comes to God and he says, listen, Lord, I want you to show me your glory. And what he was saying was, Thank you for showing me what you've, what you've shown me so far, but I know there's a lot more to see. I want to see all of it. I want to get to the bottom of who you are, God. I want nothing more than to know you, which is a righteous thing to ask for. And God very lovingly says, Moses, you can't. If you saw all my glory, it would kill you. It's too much for you to take in, which makes it all the more amazing that in John chapter 1, verse 14, the apostle John writes these words and the word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He's essentially saying what Moses wanted, we actually got. What Moses couldn't have, we were given. We saw God's full and complete glory. What does he mean? he's talking about Jesus. As soon as Jesus arrived on this earth, every person who spent time with Jesus saw the glory of God. And here's the good news for you and me. We have the four gospels and we have the Holy Spirit to interpret them for us. So whenever you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are experiencing the full, unadulterated, unfiltered glory of God because Jesus is God. You understand that, right? If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. Jesus is not just a great man. If he was just a great man, a brilliant teacher, lived a great life, then we'd all still be lost. We're saved because God came down and was fully man and fully God. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When you read the gospels, you are experiencing God's glory. And so if you ever wanna know anything about God, look at Jesus. You wanna know, how does God feel about me when I mess up? Look at how Jesus treated Peter after he denied him three times. You want to know, is God really powerful? Look at the fact that Jesus, who had flesh just like ours, could walk on water, could raise the dead. You want to know, is God smart? Does he know all things? Look at how the smartest people on earth at the time did their best to trick Jesus into making a mistake. And in every, uh, every moment, he didn't, he didn't take a breath, he just turned their question back upon them. You want to know if, if God is powerful? You want to know if God is compassionate? Look at how Jesus responded whenever he saw human need. God is Jesus, Jesus is God. So when you see Jesus, you've seen his glory. But here's the amazing thing. James didn't always believe that. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the key point. James was Jesus's physical brother. James was also born of Mary. And so they grew up together. Now I have one brother. I love him, I'm very, very proud of him but I can tell you for a fact, he is not God. <laughs> so if I ever doubt, if I ever start to doubt, and I haven't yet, but if I ever start to doubt that Jesus is who he said he was, I've always said, all the proof I need is, this man's own brother said, this is the Lord of the universe and savior of the world. Who says that? And the truth is, that wasn't always true of James. You go back in the book of John, John chapter seven, it says that, that the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him, that they mocked him and ridiculed him. it had to be hard having Jesus as your older brother and not just because you had to hear every day of your life, why can't you be more like Jesus? (laughs) But because in that culture, when when you, you had a widowed mother and you were the oldest, it was your job, it was your responsibility, it was the social expectation that you would take care of her. And Jesus walked away from that. Jesus, somewhere around the age of 30, left his carpenter's tools, left his mom, and went out and became essentially a homeless preacher. And you're left at home. That means the responsibility falls on you if you're James, if you're Judas, the other brothers of Jesus. Yes, Jesus had a brother named Judas. Look it up. Uh, And so that had to be something that made you angry. Plus, you hear these reports from abroad. The, the leaders of our people have rejected him. They've, they're, they're calling him a traitor to the Jewish people. They're calling him demon-possessed, insane. Uh, you, you find out that he's walking around saying wild and crazy things about himself. So yeah, they didn't believe in him. But then you get to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the story that comes right after the story of Jesus ascending into heaven. I mean, never coming back until he comes back for the last time. And the story right after that is suddenly James and the other brothers of Jesus are in the church following their brother as Savior and Lord. How did that happen? If the miracles didn't do it, if if his sinless life didn't do it, if his teachings didn't do it, how did it happen? You might cynically say, well, you know, they're just kind of taking over the family business. No. No, no, that would be a terrible decision because at that point, to be a Jesus follower meant you were, you were part of a group of a couple of hundred folks and all your fellow Jews thought you were heretics and all the Romans thought you were dangerous because you were followers of a, of a crucified criminal. And so James could not have done this in any kind of earthly self-interest. So what, what changed his mind? What changed his mind is he saw God's glory in Jesus finally. He saw God's glory in Jesus through one thing and that is, Through the empty tomb and the cross. I know that's two things. Through the cross and the empty tomb. Because because there, you didn't just see God's power and his righteousness, but you saw his grace. You saw a God who's willing to lay down his life for us, to give up everything to save us, and that is the ultimate glory of God. And that's how we live a life that is good. That's our answer. You can't do it by trying hard because you'll fail. At best, you'll become self-righteous. But if we come to Jesus as broken sinners, and that's the only way to be saved. If you come to Jesus as a broken sinner and you cry out for his salvation, he'll rescue you every single time. And if on a daily basis you come before him as a child of God and you say, Lord, thank you for saving me, but you didn't just save me from death and hell, you died to save me from my own sinfulness, so Lord, give me the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom to walk in his footsteps so I can, I can make those decisions today that are right, that I can see the people around me that are hurting instead of just being focused on myself, that I, can, that I can see the right moral choices to make so I can live unstained by the world, don't try to do it yourself, go to him every day, confess your sins ask for his help that's how you live this life and you'll become the kind of person who helps others and changes their lives without bragging about it and you'll become the kind of person who makes right moral choices and avoids sinful decisions that wreck everybody's life and you do that somehow without becoming a a self-righteous judgmental prude and the only reason that's true is because you're coming to him and you can take no credit for it because you know it's all him. For I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Now Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. It's the only way. It's the only way to get there. And I hate to say this, but there are millions of people sitting in Christian churches today, and maybe, maybe a handful sitting in this one, who still don't understand that, who still think it's about, I show up in church, and God's up there in heaven, and he gives me a little check mark, and then I go out, and I do a few good deeds, and then, okay. I'm good, and that's not the way it works. You have to die to yourself every day. Confess your sins and say, Lord, I need you to live through me. Yes, even on your day off. Yes, even when you're on vacation. Yes, even when you're not thinking of anything else but you, That especially that day. See, you can live such a life that not only will you go to heaven, I mean, obviously, Christ has redeemed you with his blood. But you can live such a life that someday when you stand before that throne, that majestic throne, you can lay down your life before him and say, Lord, I know it wasn't perfect and I still failed you often, but Lord, here's the people I tried my best to reach. Here's how I tried to love you with my life. Here's the life I am offering to you as, as my, my sacrifice, my offering of praise. And hear him say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come into my Father's kingdom. Is that where your life is headed right now? Because now's the time to make a change if it's not.